Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. I am so excited to be reaching a milestone of 50 episodes of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I'd like to thank everybody who have been listening all along and for those people who are discovering me, I'd like to thank you all for listening and making this show worthwhile. I have an amazing guest this week, Professor Dan Ariely. To many, he doesn't need an introduction. I hope you enjoy the show. He gives a fantastic insights on in how he studies human behavior and how we can learn, whether we're an individual or a company, about how behaviors can actually change our mindsets and how the environment around us can make us better decision makers. I really hope you enjoy the show. Why not subscribe on iTunes or comment on the podcast on economicrockstar.com forward slash Dan Ariely. And I think the internet is a public good problem, right? Coursera is a public good problem. And the question is, do we allow people who are going to pollute it for everybody else? Uh, do we allow it on Facebook? Do we allow it in online dating? Do we allow it in all kinds of cases? And what is the, what is the right of the individual compared to the right of society? Human freedom and free will is all in our ability to control our environment. Once temptation is upon us, there's a good chance we will fail. In the process of trying to not make any mistakes, companies create environments that punish risk and therefore punish ingenuity and growth. Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University in North Carolina. Dan's interests span a wide range of behaviors and his sometimes unusual experiments are consistently interesting, amusing, and informative, demonstrating profound ideas that fly in the face of common wisdom. In addition to appointments at the Fuqua School of Business, the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience, the Department of Economics, and the School of Medicine at Duke University, Dan is also a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Dan is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Rationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And his latest book, Irrationally Yours, is now available. Dan has received numerous honours and awards in medicine, psychology and economics. He received a BA in psychology from Tel Aviv University, an MA and PhD in cognitive psychology from University of North Carolina, and another PhD in business administration from Duke University. I'd love to ask you, Dan, and perhaps some of your listeners aren't aware of your traumatic life-changing experience at the age of 17, but... How did this awful situation have an unexpected and positive effect on you and your career? Yeah, so, you know, the, the terrible thing that happened was that I was, I was badly burned. Uh, I was uh, in an explosion of a magnesium flare. This is one of the um, a type of a bomb that the military sends up to the sky to light up a battlefield. And I happened to be next to one of them when they exploded. And as a consequence, I was burned in about 70% of my body and I was in hospital for about three years. And all of those, of course, are, are terrible things. Um, but, but if I try to think about the good things that happen from this, um, it's, there's basically kind of two categories. One is um, I was basically ripped out of society. Uh, imagine that all of a sudden somebody takes you out of society and you put in a bed and you can't move for a long, for a long time. And, and not just that you're in the bed, I, I couldn't do 
anything that normal people did. I couldn't walk. I couldn't move. I ate from a tube, right? There was a machine that fed me six times a day, and I would eat 30 eggs a day and 7,000 calories. Uh, somebody would bathe me. So everything was, was not normal. Um, and actually, it was, it was very, a very strange thing because I remember when they took the feeding tube out maybe four months into my injury and they asked me to eat by myself. Uh, I thought at that point that eating was just such a strange thing. All of a sudden, if you know, after not eating for a while, like chewing seemed dirty and, and uh, effortful and you know, <laughs> it just seemed to me uh, to, be, to be very strange. But, but everything became strange. And, and I think I... I think about being distant from society and not being able to participate in the regular activities of people, uh, not even eating, um, not sitting on the grass without, with other people. Uh, not being able to participate, I think, gave me kind of a, a little bit of an outside perspective. So I would, I would look at how people behave, um, and, and it didn't look like our behavior. It looked like their behavior. So I think I became a bit more distant in both a good way and a, and a bad way and a bit more objective in terms of observing uh, human behavior so that's that's one one aspect for, for example I remember in in college you know all the students would after class would sit in the sun and you know uh, flirt and do all kinds of things and I couldn't sit on the ground I couldn't lower myself this this much I couldn't be in the sun I had these bandages that covered me from head to toe that made everything very hot for me. So I would basically had to run very quickly after class to a room that was chilled uh, extra specially high in the computer lab and, and really didn't, didn't take part in, in anybody's life. So that, that's the first aspect, is not taking part in, in regular life and observing things from the outside. And then the second was that there were particular behaviors that became interesting for me. So the one I wrote most about was the question of how to remove bandages from burn patients. Should we rip the bandages off quickly or take them out slowly? Another question that interested me was the question of painkillers and the, the question of how do placebos work and don't work. There was the question of control. There was all kinds of questions that were more specific that started my interest in what kind of things we do well for people? What kind of things we don't do well for people? And can we get the, the process to be, to be better? And what I wanted to do when I was kind of getting a little bit better, I wanted to become a physician. I, I saw all kinds of things that the physicians were doing that I didn't like, and I thought I could do a better job. And I thought that because I understood the insides of hospital from the patient perspective, I could do a better job for my patients. But the problem is that my mobility is so low, I can, I can hardly move my hands, um, and it would be very hard for me to be, to be a physician. And I, I applied, and they basically said, not a good idea, that this is not uh, somebody who can't use their hands, this is not in, in the cards. And, and I, I didn't know what to do, and I, I started studying other things, including, including psychology. Uh, and eventually, I, I think I found a way to help in social science. So it's not the same help as if I was healthy and I could, you know, operate on people and uh, help them directly. But I, I have the same kind of approach where I try to figure out what do we do wrong, uh, what could we do better, and how do we use social science for this, and how do we improve things from this perspective. That's a fascinating story, very, very harrowing indeed. 
and you mentioned there that you you took on something like seven thousand calories a day. I, yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know, and then when they asked me to start eating. The thing I really wanted to eat when they first asked me to start eating, I wanted strawberries and whipped cream. Don't ask me why, but that's what I wanted. But of course, they told me I can't have the strawberries because that's just, you know, eating without many calories. They kind of liked the idea of whipped cream, but they didn't like the whipping part. They just wanted me to drink the cream. Um, because because eating 7,000 calories a day is actually quite challenging. Yes. It's, not, it's not easy. Or maybe you could do it with donuts or something, but eating... You know, the kind of calories they wanted me to eat to replenish the body and allow the body to heal and get new skin and heal the scars um, was was really very, very trying. And would you know by looking back on this, was this an effective method or would you realize now if there was somebody else that were in, was in your situation, would that be a recommended medical approach? So, you know, over the years, people learned lots of, lots of things about how to treat uh, burn patients. Uh, the, biggest, the biggest improvement has been that uh, now they take people in that were injured to the extent I was injured, and they just put them in an induced coma. Right. You know, the, the beginning months, there was really no reason for me to suffer uh, at, that, at that degree, to have, to have that amount of pain and, and suffering in the bath treatment, out of the bath treatment. So what they do now is they just induce people into a coma for quite a while as they, as they work on them. Um, but by the way, this has been one of the advances in medical technology has been medications. So when I was a burn patient, uh, some of the better medications for pain uh, also had kind of reduced the ability of the body to deal with the heart and with lung functions. So it was a very uh, tricky situation to give us good painkillers because they would also make it possible that we, you know, we would have a, either a, a heart or lung malfunctioning because burns is not just the skin, right? There's lots of things that, that get burned and don't function very well. But the improvement of uh, medications, uh, pain medications, have been quite, quite substantial. So that's the first thing that has, that has improved. Uh, there's also some really interesting new technologies that uh, help people create skin faster. In particular, you can take some cells from an individual and grow them artificially in the lab and creating a very uh, large piece of skin that is based on that person's uh, skin, and that actually helps cover the skin much, much healthier. Uh, in the beginning, the technology for this was creating a very thin layer of skin, so it wasn't that good, but now they're getting a thicker uh, level of skin, which is, which is better. So lots of changes are are happening, and every time I read about uh, one of those, I'm very happy that they're happening, and I'm kind of a little sad that it did not happen earlier. True. And you mentioned that you started, you began observing people. Did you ever get into trouble for this, or was this more based on your training in the army? Would you were you quite good at it? <laughs> Uh, no, I never got I never got into into trouble officially. You know, I'm people know more about it now than they did then. You know, and it started as a hobby, observing people, and became a profession uh, of observing people and experimenting. And now, of course, anybody who talks to me is uh, worried that I'm doing an experiment on them. And uh, every time something happens, uh, even by mistake, people think I'm running an experiment. 
So uh, I taught an online class on Coursera. Do you know this uh, platform? I do. Yeah. And, you know, the first time I taught, I taught that class twice. The first time I taught it, you know, they were still figuring things out. And from time to time, things were not working out in the platform. Like, you know, it was, you know, not working or some function was not working. And the students were always suspicious that everything that was not working on the platform was actually an experiment I was devising to test, to test them in some, in some ways. So that's the only way it's coming back is that people are just suspicious a lot. And will you be starting this again soon? A beginner's guide to irrational behavior on Coursera? So, so, so you know, that it's, it's actually a very interesting and sad question. And, and I think the answer is no. And, and I'll tell you why. And, 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 and we, can, we can think about what, what does this say about psychology and economics. So Coursera is a wonderful platform. And it really allows lots of people to acquire information that is kind of reserved to, to usually students in university. Um, and I really admire what they're doing. But both times I taught the class, you know, I had, let's say, close to 200,000 students. Um, and what do you think are the odds that somebody from these list of 200,000 students will have some complaint about something? Very high, Right. So, so what happened is that both times uh, people were upset about something and they were either upset about something uh, in the first case, they were upset about something and complained to the university. So somebody uh, complained to the university that was not doing something right. And of course, when somebody complains to the university, the university has to start an investigation. So they start an investigation and, and just imagine that you, you have your regular workload. You, you teach at the university, you do research. On top of that, you do Coursera for free and, you know, it has all kinds of uh, extra uh, demand of your time. And all of a sudden, you also have this investigation happening, right? It was just too much to bear. And then when I taught the second time, uh, somebody again complained against some of the language that was on, on the site. And again... Uh, the people at the university wanted me to change everything. So what happened is that every time I taught the class, there was one person that was very upset about something. They were very vocal. And I, have to take, I had to take many hours out of my very, very precious, stressful time and to deal with their complaints. And I really can't handle that anymore. So both times... For the seventh week of the class, I basically, you know, the first week was fine. Then somebody complained. And then from that point on, I have no time to sleep anymore. Because if I have to solve these problems in real time as somebody is complaining, uh, there's basically no give and take. I'm not, I'm not planning on having a problem. I'm not planning on somebody complaining and keeping three hours a day ready for to deal with those things. So... So basically, it was one bad apple that is making it impossible for me to, to teach again. So if I think about teaching again, I think, oh, it's a really nice thing to do for lots and lots of people. But the odds that there will be another unhappy person that will just uh, take every minute of extra time I have for these six weeks is too much, is too much to bear. And I talked to Coursera about this and I said, look, why, if there's somebody who's, who's a, let's say, a pain in the ass, do we have to include them? And right now they're saying yes. They're saying, you know, it's an open platform. Everybody's invited. And I think it's something that we actually have to think about very carefully. You know, so if somebody comes to my house 
they're going to behave by my rules, right? This is my house. And, and I think in the same way, my class is kind of my rules. And if people want to leave, they can leave. And if they misbehave, I might ask them to leave. But somehow on the internet, uh, we treat my class on Coursera as not really my space. And everybody has the right to be there. Uh, but by having the right to be there and behaving in any way they want, people create what we, what we call is the tragedy of the commons, mm. right? So the tragedy of the commons is a situation, you remember the old stories. The old story is that you have a piece of grass and every farmer has one cow and everybody's happy. All of a sudden, one farmer gets two cows. Well, there's not enough grass for all the farmers to have one cow and one to have two cows, the grass is not replenished at the right speed, and soon enough, there's not enough grass to feed any of the cows, and they all are slightly malnourished, and they all uh, don't produce enough milk, and everybody suffers because of that. And that, of course, is, is the case that we see in um, overfishing and all kinds of other public goods problems. And, and I think the Internet is a public good problem, right? Coursera is a public good problem, and the question is, do we allow people who are going to pollute it for everybody else. Uh, do we allow it on Facebook? Do we allow it in online dating? Do we allow it in all kinds of cases? And what is the, what is the right of the individual compared to the right of society? And in this case, I, I personally think Coursera is making the wrong choice because unless they can promise me that I will not be harassed again, I'm, I'm not going to um, volunteer again. That's I'm absolutely with you on that one because you're always going to have trolls on any platform that'll upset you or anybody else are participating. And I think, and I'm sure you agree, that there are a number of easy solutions for this. And one of them is a pricing model because if you start charging people a high price, you'll eliminate those people who want it for free. And it's usually the people who get it for free are the biggest complainers. And maybe even put it on your own platform and be independent of any MOOC or Coursera and have it and sell it if you need to sell it or have a private group that you want people who really want to learn from you to enjoy the platform that you've just created. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that pricing is a very good mechanism for some things. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's a, it's a mechanism for all, for all things like this. Um, and look, uh, the reality is that Coursera probably oversamples from the the people on the tail of the distribution in terms of mental stability, right? So Coursera, you know, is 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 wonderful for everybody, but the people who are particularly attracted to this are the people who have extra time, right? And and you can think about who are the people who have extra time to dedicate to this. Now I'm not saying that everybody who is on Coursera. Uh, is necessarily, you know, mentally unstable. But but if you think about who are the people that have extra time, you know, people at retirement, they certainly oversample from, from those. Uh, people who are unemployed, I mean, they, they sample from all kinds of people who have extra time. And it is not always that this uh, correlates with having no money, but I think we do need rules for trolls, right? So the internet, uh, you remember what, what happened recently, there are all kinds of cases of internet bullying. And, and we just have to figure out as a society, what are we going to do with this? What are the, what are the rules of behavior in those cases? And 
we haven't really figured it out. So some people think it's their moral right to say whatever they want, even if it's offensive and uh, even if it's killing their platform for everybody else. I'm sure um, there's only a certain tolerance that anyone could take based on this type of, I wouldn't even call it interaction. But would you have been more tol- tolerable as a younger man? Or was this something that you would have learned based on, I'm not sure if people stared at you based on your, your traumatic experience but so, have you become more tolerable or would you just kind of cut it at a point and say i'm not, not doing that anymore you mean tolerable or tolerating um you know i i, I I'm, I'm hoping i'm, I'm both <laughs> uh, so yeah so you know i i'm i'm used to people looking at me uh, a particularly interesting um kind of point for me in any kind of meeting new people is shaking people's hands uh, because um, it's very hard not to pay attention to how somebody shake, shakes my hands. My hands are badly burned and they are deformed. And some people hold them like you would hold a fish, right? You kind of try not to, not to really touch it. Uh, some people hold it nicely but try to shake very lightly. I mean, people, people, do, people do very, very different, uh, very different things. And, and, I, and I, do pay, I do pay attention to this. And I think... I'm trying to think if I'm more flexible and tolerating. I, I think I am. I think I am. I think I I don't take things to, to heart as much in the in the personal uh, relationship domain. And I think I don't take things in the personal relationship uh, domain, partially because I've had so many terrible things happening that, you know, these these things don't don't seem to me so so terrible. But I would say that in the in this particular case, right now I have so little time that that somebody who is taking my time is just incredibly hard for me to to deal with. It's um, you know I, I have so many competing desires and aspects that I just I just can't I, I just don't have the time to to deal with those with those things. So I think in general I'm more tolerating, but this is probably not the case for things that have to do with people abusing my time. You're an academic by nature. Yeah. But most people know you in terms of how you relate your scholarly papers to topics in a more conversational and less academic way. How important was that for you to try and get the message out there? Yeah, so so this is another one of those cases where, you know, there was really no no plan uh, for this. So actually what, what happened was that I was an academic for a while and I was writing academic papers and I um, enjoyed writing academic papers, but I wanted to write something in a more flexible and fun way. And I decided to try and write a cookbook. And I had a name for the cookbook. It was called Dining Without Crumbs, The Art of Eating Over the Sink. And it was, it was going to be um, a guide for the kitchen. It was going to talk about kind of looking at decision-making and behavioral economics through the eyes of the kitchen. And if you think about it, the kitchen is a wonderful metaphor for the rest of life. It's where we experiment and try new things. It's where we uh, fail and it's where we think about other people. Lot, lots of things happen, happen in the kitchen. And I thought this would be just a great way to, to think about this. And I I wrote a couple of chapters and I showed it to different people and I showed it to some publishers and uh, people liked it. They thought it was funny and I could, could write. 
But they said it's, it's not a research book, it's not a cooking book, it's not a humor book. What, what is it? And, and for, for a while, I tried to convince people to do it, and nobody was interested until one book agent told me that if I ever want to truly publish my cookbook, I first have to write something about my research. So I wrote my first book, Predictably Irrational. It's kind of a stepping stone. I said, he said, uh, you know, this book agent told me that I just have to write something about my research. And if I write, then I could write my cookbook next. So, so I wrote it as, you know, an introduction to allow me to write my cooking book. And the, the, the book was rather successful. And then, you know, it was interesting to write a second and a third. And I, I just, uh, I had the advice column in one of the newspapers here in the States, uh, kind of a Dear Abby, but just not as good <laughs> column. And uh, I just did a, f- a fourth book, but, but the cookbook is still high on my list. So I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to it very soon. I, I want that cookbook. I know how much you love audio. So why not get a free audio book with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. I'm not Very sure good. if you heard of Tim Ferriss. He yes, wrote, of course. Oh, sure. You, like you, well, similar in terms of his approach to life and biohacking and trying to hack the situation so that he could become, I suppose, more rational, remove the procrastination stuff that you look at in your research. And he has his four-hour chef. Yes. So, so Tim, Tim is a is a very interesting character, and he's experimenting on himself. Yes. Right. So, and and this is uh, we have to realize that his experiments are, kind of have the validity that they work very well for him. Right. Where where when we do kind of social science, we try to figure out what works on average for for many people. Mm-hmm. So so it's a it's a different approach, uh, but of course they're not. The things that work for, for Tim are really interesting as well. And you can think to yourself, okay, now I have a particular understanding of a recipe that could work for me as well. And you can try and see if, that, if that's the recipe for you. If you think about, you know, there are many differences uh, between us. Uh, but if you think about it, Tim really kind of jumps in as the participant. And his observation is coming as a participant in a, in, in his experiment where, where I am uh, taking a, a more distant uh, approach and I create a situation for other people, often when they don't even know that they are being in an experiment or they don't know what the experiment is about, and then I observe how people behave. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's some interesting differences and kind of complementarities between the approaches. Also, Dan, we as humans, we all repeatedly and predictably make the wrong decisions in many aspects of our lives. And how can your research help change some of these patterns now that you've given us some type of insight into behavioral elements of economics? Yeah, so, so, so two things maybe to think about. One is that I'm not sure we make mistakes all the time. Uh, I, I don't really know what does it mean to, to think about what's the frequency of the mistakes, but we certainly make very expensive mistakes, right? So you think about something like texting and driving, you don't have to text and drive a lot to kill yourself and other people. It's enough to do it once in a while. Uh, you don't have to overeat every time you eat. It's enough to overeat once a day or you know three times a week, and you create long-term consequences for bad behavior. 
you don't have to get uh, road rage all the time. It's enough to do it once in a while that it's incredibly devastating. Or you don't have to take your money out of the stock market every time the stock market goes down. It's enough to do it once and, and you have long-term consequences for bad behavior. So, so I think that we need to uh, realize that we make very costly mistakes. Some of them are mistakes that one mistake – some of them are cases where one mistake is very costly. Some is a sequence of mistake is very costly. And, and of course, the question is, what can we do? And, you know, if we think that we can observe, uh, approach each decision and just kind of do the right thing, that's just not going to happen, right? It's just too much of a hurdle. Getting, getting the, the right behavior every time, not going to happen. Too, too complex, too, too big, not going to happen. But when we approach big decisions, I think those are the cases where we could stop, think about it, and incorporate other elements into our decision that might otherwise we might not have incorporated. So you, maybe when you go to buy coffee, you don't think about it every time, but when you're going to buy a house or decide to go on a date or buy a car, go on vacation, you stop and you think about it. So let's just take, for example, vacation, right? So if you think about vacation and you understand social science, you would say, well, there are really three types, three parts for the vacation. There's the part where you plan the vacation and anticipate it. There's the part that you are on vacation. And then there's a the part where you remember the vacation later on. And from these three components, the vacation itself is probably the shortest of the three. So you could say, well, now let me think about what a vacation would maximize the joint approach of all three components, what vacation I will enjoy planning, what vacation I will enjoy being there, and what vacation I will enjoy looking in retrospect back on. And you will probably go on a very different vacation if this is the case, right? Because you might, if you just think about the vacation itself, you might say, well, let me just sit on the beach drinking mojitos and, you know, that will be a great vacation. But if you think about something that you want to remember for a long time afterward that would change how you look at life, change how you view yourself, change what you know, then you might go to, you know, Antarctica and watch the penguins or do, or do something else. So, uh, and, and you might choose to do something that is not as relaxing, not as fun at the moment, but would create higher impact on your life moving forward. So the first lesson I think is that when we approach big decisions, we can step back and we could say, what would make this a good decision? The second thing is to approach habitual behaviors. And this one we don't want to approach every time because it's just too time-consuming, but from time to time. So maybe at the end of the year, you can sit back and you can say, well, let me think about all the decisions I make and which ones do I want to change. Do I go drinking too much? Do I smoke too much? Do I exercise uh, You know, not enough or too much? Do I do this? Do I do that? And let me think about the rule or a habit or something else that would get me to change this behavior. So, so that's the second kind of recipe. And, and the third recipe really has to do with the role of the environment in shaping our experience. So this is maybe one of the biggest lessons in social science and in behavioral economics, which is that the environment matters. And while we think that we make decisions, the reality is that the environment we're being put in kind of makes the decisions for us. Uh, if you came every morning to your office and I, I layered your, your desk with donuts, you know, there's a very good chance you'll be less healthy at the end of the year. 
right? So once you are exposed to those donuts, I'm not saying you'll fail every day, but by the end of the year, you'll weigh more. But, but we don't have to put donuts on people's tables every day. We don't have to create temptation. So imagine, and, and we call this choice architecture. Choice architecture is this idea that the environment influences how we make decisions. So now let's take this to the next step. Imagine that you're the choice architect of your own life. How would you design things differently so that you're less likely to behave badly? And, you know, there's lots of things like that. Yeah, I'll give you one example. I'm sitting here in my office and I have something called Kitchen Safe. And Kitchen Safe was a device designed by one of my ex students. And it's a jar, a plastic jar with a cover. And what the cover has is this function to lock itself so you can't open the jar for a pre-specified time. Um, and I have some things in this jar that I enjoy eating, and I can open it. But once I close the jar, it, there's no way to open it for the next 24 hours. Is there a time lock on it? Yes, it's a time lock. And you can set up the time lock to anything you want. I set it up for 24 hours. So I don't have cookies there, but imagine you have cookies there and you take a cookie and you close it. The moment you've closed it, it's gone. There's no, there's no question. You can't get any cookie until the timer, uh, timer is out. And that's kind of a Ulysses contract, right? That's kind of a basically saying I'm going to create an environment that will make it impossible for me to fail in a too high frequency. I'll give you another example. Automatic deductions from checking accounts, right? It's basically setting up the environment to get us to behave in a good way. Another thing that uh, I used to do is, again, I'm, I'm in my office, so I'm thinking about things in my office. I used to have two computers in my office. It was on one desk, and I had another computer that had an internet browser and also had some other things on it. And what it did for me was to make it much more conscious to figure out that I'm moving from work life to a life that is maybe a mix. So much work is done through email and through Slack and through the browser, that it's, it's not as easy to, to create this separation. But for a while, I made, I made the separation much more easy, and it was easy for me to see in which world I was in. And all of a sudden, the decision to move from work to non-work was much more conscious. So, so all of this is to say something, which is that human freedom and free will is all in our ability to control our environment. Once temptation is upon us, there's a good chance we will fail. But we don't have to face temptation all the time, and we can design our environment in a way that is much more likely to usher good behavior. You are the average of the five people you hang around with. That's, that's also true. And, you know, the, the moment they, these, the people that you hang out with change, they start smoking, they become more obese, they do all kinds of things, there's a good chance you will change in this direction as well. So it's not just people, it's people, it's the environment, lots of things tempt us and we need to figure them out. I'll give you one more simple example. Brian Wansing, one of my favorite researchers, is doing lots of research on how people behave with food. And one of his experiments, he basically gives people a bowl of soup. And some people have a bowl of soup and next to it is a big pot of soup. And when they finish, he says, do you want more soup? And people say, no, I had enough soup. Thank you very much. And then other people have the same bowl of soup with the same big pot, but they don't know it. 
but their bowl of soup has a hose in the bottom, and it's connected to a big vat of soup. And as they eat soup, he pushes a little bit of more soup into their into their soup bowl. So it still goes down, but it doesn't go down at the right speed. It goes down slower. And people don't realize that, right? So people don't realize that the soup is being pushed into their soup bowl. And what happens is that people end up eating 73% more soup. And when you ask them how much soup they've eaten, they don't think they've eaten anymore, right? So here's a case in which the, the environment, the way that the bowl is shaped and what it gives us, really change how much food we, we consume. This is why the things like the shape of a glass influence how much we drink and the size of a plate influence how much we eat and so on and so forth. I'm smiling with that experiment. Absolutely fantastic. It is a great experiment. Yes, I'm sure what you just mentioned there ties in with a question Michael Plant from London has. He wants to know why we're so bad at doing things that make us happy. Yeah. So first of all, we need, we need to realize that the world that we have created is not necessarily the world that we were designed to from an evolutionary perspective, right? So uh, lots of the things that have been created are, are really rather recent. So, you know, you can say uh, for an animal running in the jungle, it's really good to eat all the sugar and fat that it, it finds the moment it, it finds it and not, and not wait. For us humans in the modern world, not such a good not such a good idea. And and part of the problems of things that we have created are not things that really fit with our natural tendencies. So, so the question of happiness is particularly interesting. And there are a couple of mistakes that people do in terms of happiness. Uh, one mistake is that uh, people get too much stuff and not enough experiences. Right? So you say to yourself, what will make me happy? And you say, oh, a new sofa, a new radio, a new phone. And you know what? You're right. It does make you happy, but it makes you happy for a short term. So we, we know it will make us happy, but we don't understand how it will make us happy only for the short term. We don't understand adaptation. Whereas experiences maybe create less happiness at the moment, uh, but they create more longer, long-lasting uh, influence on our emotions. So that's, that's one, one kind of mistake we make. Another kind of interesting mistake is that we don't invest enough in social relationships. And social relationships are one of those things that at the moment, you know, you ask yourself, like, what do I prefer to do now? Do I want to call my mother, my sister, or my friend, or would I prefer to play Angry Birds? Angry Birds seem much more appealing at the moment compared to those other things, but it doesn't create long-term happiness. So if we think about happiness right now, and we will do very different things than if we uh, optimize long-term happiness. And social relationships are one of those things that sometime at the moment we might not feel like calling our mother or friend or somebody like this, but in the long term they will give us much, much higher happiness because social relationships are incredibly important. Uh, by the way, there's all kinds of interesting sh uh, findings showing that when women pass away at, at a late age, there's a good chance that their husband would follow suit very, very quickly, often in the first year. Whereas if husbands die, uh, that, the, the wives are not going to pass away. And this is because the wife is often the husband's best friend, but it's not true for the way around. So this is, this is also important to, to be the case. So that's, that's one, one thing. And then another thing about happiness 
is that uh, this is stuff by Mike Norton and Elizabeth Dunn is that people don't give money enough. So it turns out that uh, you, you think to yourself, oh, if I only had some more money, I would buy something for myself and that would make me happy. But often this is not the case. Often the best way to get people higher happiness is to actually give money away. But people don't realize that. People don't understand that giving things away would actually make them happy, happier. So there's lots of ways in which our theory about happiness is incorrect or that our theory of happiness is about momentary happiness, but it's not about long-term happiness. Right. You've been invited by companies to help them with experimenting especially in terms of their customers' or employees' decision-making and their behaviours. But I have a, another question here from Marco Schweiger. He's from Munich, and he's, handing in, he's submitting his thesis, and he's doing it on irrational behaviour and optimising decision models for companies. And he would love for you to give him a quote or something that he could use in terms of what you think is the most common mistake companies make when they make decisions or process information, and if you have a tip or a hint on how to avoid them. So, you know, where, where, where do you start about, about companies? Um, I think there, there are uh, lots of mistakes that companies do. I think actually companies do uh, worse mistakes than individuals. We often don't think this is the case, but I think it is the case. There's one very interesting uh, example for this. Do you remember something called the asymmetric dominance effect? The asymmetric dominance effect is the idea that when we have a decoy when we have an option that nobody wants, but it's similar to one of the options we have, it changes how people think about the choice. So in Predictably Irrational, I gave an example from The Economist. And I said, imagine you have three choices. You have The Economist online for $59. You have The Economist in the print version, which is 125 Or you can get both for 125 well, in this case, who would get the economist only for 125 when you can get the economist plus online in 125? So nobody gets it. Nobody gets the online, the, the print only, uh, but it becomes a decoy. People said the economist online for $59, the bundle for 125, I don't know, but the comparison between the bundle for 125 and the print version only for 125 makes the bundle look better in relative terms, right? So people, so it, it basically creates a contrast to the bundle and not to the online version, and people start buying the bundle with a higher frequency. Now, this is a kind of mistake that when you tell people, when you ask people, look, please participate in this study, and later on we will ask you to explain your choices to somebody else, the mistakes actually go increase. People become more accountable. They try to find a story of why this is the right choice, and they're likely to make more of these mistakes. So, so there are some mistakes that people probably make less when, when they're in a business situation, but there are many ones that they, they make more. And I think if you're looking for kind of a generalization, I think businesses are very much concerned about not making mistakes. And I think by being very concerned about not making mistakes and maybe covering their asses, they give up lots of opportunities. Uh, they give lots of opportunity for growth, for experimentation, for trial. So, so all this is a very long introduction to say, if you asked me to give you a quote, I would say something like, in the process of trying to not make any mistakes, 
companies create environments that punish risk and therefore punish ingenuity and growth. How is that? That is absolutely amazing. Love that, Dan. Marco will be thrilled with that one. Let's hope. Yes. Do you become frustrated after spending so much time with these companies for them at the end to come along and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to go ahead with this. We believe it's going to be unethical if we end up messing around with the prices and people pay too much when we feel they shouldn't be. But people perceive products and services based on the value. And some will actually go, and as you said, if they don't risk this, they're not going to find out in the long term what makes people tick in terms of the price offering or the price bundle that these companies make. Do you become very frustrated with that? So, so you know, as an academic, we're, we're kind of used to slow progress. So I think that helps. Um, I'm also becoming more vocal. So recently I talked to a CEO of a big company and, you know, I he wanted to to do to run a, to, to do some kind of partnership with my research lab at the university and he wanted me to give him a, a table of deliverables and i said look i don't want to give you deliverables I, I don't know where we're going exactly i know where which direction we're aiming but i don't want to give you deliverables because you know if we knew exactly where we're going we don't need to go there we don't need to explore we don't need to study and he says, oh, he feels very uncomfortable with not knowing exactly where, where we're going and he wants deliverables. And I, I told him that he should just resign his job as the CEO of his company if he's not willing to take some risks. Um, you know, eventually he, he took the risk. But I think in general, it is kind of our job as academics to try and convince people that this approach of being too safe and not making mistakes is actually wrong for the organizations. You know, we... I think we are, our social obligation as academics is, is to study things that are hindering society and to try and help people understand what those are and, and, and how to overcome them. And if anything, I think my frustration is more with us as academics, you know, to basically say, oh, all CEOs should be masters of understanding how compensation work and how incentives work and how to get people to experiment more. It, this is not necessarily all that they need to do. They need to do lots of other things, right? You can't expect them to do this. It's actually us, the people who are, you know, the society gave us the role Oh, you know, we took it, society gave us, but, you know, we, of, of studying human behavior, understanding how people behave and trying to improve it. So every, every time I'm thinking about, uh, something I'm thinking, you know, we, we don't know enough. We haven't experimented enough. We haven't put enough resources uh, to this. So that's my approach. You mentioned that you get, you're becoming quite vocal. And at times, I'm sure, obviously, for obvious reasons, going back to our earlier discussion on Coursera, quite angry. And it ties in with a question that another person has actually submitted, if you don't mind answering, Jose Maria de la Jara. She asked if anger is a good or bad emotion? And should anger on judges be regulated? Yeah, so I, I really don't get angry very, very often. <clears throat> I do get frustrated. I do get upset. Um, I cry from time to time. A anger is not one of my most common emotions. But I do think that anger, anger is an interesting emotion. So if you think about anger versus sadness, uh, sadness is a, is a negative emotion uh, that pulls you toward lack of action. Whereas anger is a negative emotion that pulls you toward action. 
So those are two very different cases. And it's kind of interesting to think about which one is better. And I, I don't think there's an absolute answer that's saying anger is never good or sadness, it's never good. I think that both of them have some some positive function, but I think they do get out of hand a lot. And while sadness, if it gets out of hand, it only harms the individual. Anger, when it gets out of hand, because it's an active kind of emotion, can can hurt other people as well and can have lots of long-term consequences. So if you think about something like revenge, revenge is something that, you know, can, can escalate. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Israeli and I think a lot about conflicts in the, in the Middle East, which of course are very painful and difficult and so on. And, and as long as people are from both sides are uh, angry and mistrusting and, and revengeful, uh, it's very hard to stop the cycle of violence. So as long as, as long as you are trying to satisfy your emotion and emotions are something that are short term and immediate, uh, but inconsistent with long-term goals, people are going to act in ways that are not good for them or for their country uh, or people in, in the long term. So, so I think I, I can see the reason evolutionary for anger and sadness. I can see some of the usefulness even in modern life, but, but I agree that they often become way too prevalent and we need to figure out how do we moderate them in, in those cases, right? How do we... Uh, not experience those terrible emotions when we come to make decisions about things like peace. Time is almost up, Dan, and I don't want to take you too much further from your your next appointment. Can I ask you a number of quick-fire questions, if you don't mind? You can ask, and I will try. Your main influencers, whether they're the people who might have got you into economics or those that are surrounding your whole perspective on the studies that you're doing right now. So, so maybe the most important influence of my life was my professor for physiology. His name was Hanan Frank, still is Hanan Frank. <laughs> and he, he lost both of his legs in an explosion. Wow. And he, two things kind of inspired me, he, he inspired in me. One was that he took his personal experience of pain and made it into his profession. Uh, and the second was that he always challenged us, his, us, his students, to come up with experimental ideas for anything. Right. So everything that that we would ask him as a question, he never answered. Uh, he always said, "What experiment would you run to figure out if you're correct or not correct?" And then he would answer. But I love both of those things. How do you take your personal experience and make them into your professional passion? And how do you think about everything in life as an experimental question? What is the one most surprising finding that you've got from your research or a question from Ask Ariely that your latest book is based upon? <clears throat> so maybe the most important question that somebody asked me in Ask Ariely was a woman who wrote me and said that she just uh, learned that she had uh, brain cancer and she was asking me how to take the bandages off, to take them, uh, how, to do, how to tell their kids. <laughs> Sorry, she asked how to tell her kids, to tell them, Quickly or slowly? And she took the, the question from how I describe how to take bandages off. And when she asked me this question, well, how do you give bad news? I really didn't know the answer. So I went to all my physician's friends and I looked at the literature and nobody actually knows what's the best way to deliver bad news. 
so we started the research project on that. We're still in the middle of it, so but physicians don't know, and it's something incredibly important. So this was a case in which somebody asked me a question. It was an important question, something we don't know much about and kind of changed my research path. Yes. In terms of the, the most fine, surprising finding, um, let me describe to you one final piece of research. So this is a project we are just finishing now in Kenya when we try to get very poor people to save some money. And we teamed up with the uh, M-Pesa, the cell phone company's payment system, an investment bank. And we gave people a system where they could text money in, but every night the investment bank would take the money and put it in the investment bank. So if you wanted, you could very easily put money in, but it would be very hard to draw the money. You had to take a bus and go to the city and you know submit a piece of paper and wait and get the money out. So we wanted people to be able to get the money in real emergency, but we wanted that not everything would become an emergency. And then we try to incentivize people in different ways to save money. Some people, we texted them once a week. Some people, once a week, we texted them from their kids, as if it came from their kids. Uh, some people, we gave them 10% match. If you save up to 100 shillings, we'll give you 10% match at the end of the week. Some people, we gave them 20% match. Some people, we gave them a pre-match. What's a pre-match? We put the money in their account in the beginning of the month, and if they save, they got to keep it, and if not, we took it back. So 10 and 20% post-match, 10 and 20% pre-match. And some people got the coin. This was a coin we made. It had 24 numbers written on it on the edge of it. And we asked them to put the coin somewhere in their hut, and every week to take it out and scratch that number of the week with a knife, one way if they saved and a different way if they didn't save. And now the question is, how much did people save? Well, I'll tell you the results. Just texting helped a little bit. That's good. Giving people 10% post-match helped some more. 20% post-match was just like the 10%. 10% pre-match helped a bit more. 20% pre-match was just the same as the 10%. And this was the same as text from the kids. But the coin was the big surprise. The coin basically doubled savings. And the question, of course, is why? Why did the coin double savings? And the finding is that it's because it was something physical in the environment. Mm -hmm. So here's what happened. When you look at when people saved, they saved on the day that we texted them. In a coin condition, people, texted on, people saved on also the other days, which suggests that we really need to understand people's mindsets, right? We started by talking about how the environment matters. The coin was one way to get people's environment to remind them about savings. And if you control the environment, you, can get to, you get to control what people end up doing. Now, just to be clear, I thought this was an interesting condition, so that's why we ran it. But I didn't expect it to be this successful compared to the other conditions. So that's the most surprising thing that is bugging me these days. And I'm trying to understand it to a higher degree. And I'm trying to understand what is the next version of the coin that would get people to save even more. Possibly Bitcoin is going to find itself some trouble down in the sense of a virtual currency. I think so. <laughs> Before we leave, Dan, do you have any takeaway that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think the takeaway is think about your environment and always experiment. We know very little about 
how we function and what motivates us and what gets us happiness and and, and it's very easy to basically set up to this pattern of behavior uh, but but we need to experiment and we need to figure out what makes us better and what makes us work Dan thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on economic rockstar I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you share with our listeners where they can find you my blog is danarelli.com d-a-n-a-r-i-e-l-y.com uh, come join us it'll be fun you can find all the links to Dan on economicrockstar.com forward slash Dan Ariely. And I'll also put a link to all his books too. Dan, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are officially an economic rockstar. I feel I feel wonderful. Thanks a lot and take care. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, why not subscribe to the Economic Rockstar podcast and you will get access to all previous episodes, including comedians Andrew Heaton and Joram Bauman and multimillionaire Ryan Blair. Hi. Hi, how are you keeping? Thanks very much for taking time out and speaking with me, Dan. I'm very, very privileged. Uh, I'm not so sure, but thank you for saying it. Um, I, I'd love to uh, obviously explore the work that you do. Yeah, that's great. Do you let, have any... me, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Do you want this to be more of a discussion or more answers, short, long? I don't, I don't mind whatever way it takes. Honestly, Dan, we could have a discussion about things. I have num- numerous questions and I, I don't want to be rigid in terms of a format. So if we let it flow naturally, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Okay, so tell me a little bit about you. What what are you an expert on? I'm, I am I lecture in economics and finance, and I do statistics also at a college here in Ireland. And Which I start one? In Waterford Institute of Technology. Okay. Uh, it's down in the south, Waterford City. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know you've been in Ireland a number of times. And I also started this podcast and launched it in November. So the topics are quite varied in terms of the economics. It's not all behavioral economics. So we had some already. Um, you might know Dan Hammermesh. Um, yeah. So he's been on, on the podcast too. Great. And and Waterford is where the famous Waterford woodstoves are coming from? The Waterford crystal, is it? There's also Waterford um, wood burning stoves. Oh, yes, you're correct. Waterford Stanley. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know them well, yeah. Very, very well known, yeah. Yeah, they're a great company, yes. And making a huge comeback lately with the price in oil rising. Yeah. Um, I could leave the introduction and I could fill that in later on if you wish, Dan. Sure. 